Good morning. I have to admit that I am at an age now where in unguarded moments, I find myself saying phrases such as, back in my day, (laughs) followed closely by nowadays. I'm not particularly proud of this new tendency in my life, but it seems to keep happening. So, for example, I hear somebody complain that they can't get the back windows down in their car because the button's broken. And in spite of my own desires, I find myself saying, back in my day, we had to crank down the windows with this windy thing. Back in my day, you opened the one window you could reach and you liked it. And you just sat there and you sweat it out. Because in my day, we didn't have air conditioning in our cars either. And then I look into the eyes of many who are listening to my little tirade. I look into many of your eyes, and I realize that when I speak of the lovely decades of the 1970s, the 1980s, my decades, that I might as well be talking to many of you about the 1770s or the 1480s, because in your minds, if there was no internet, it was the dark ages. When I let people know that in the 1970s, My entire elementary school class, everyone I knew, or should I say, no one I knew growing up had a VCR, none of us had cable TV, and none of us had microwaves, because they weren't, 25% of homes in 1986 had microwaves, 75% didn't even 1986, I didn't grow up with a microwave. And these young people look at me with first eyes of pity, and then eyes of wonderment, like, How did you ever survive? But when I'm mentioning these decades of my life, I'm usually doing so with a spirit of nostalgia. The spirit of, well, those those were the good old days. The 1970s were the good old days. Because in the 1970s, yes, we wore plaid. Lots of plaid, plaid pants, not just plaid shirt. Plaid pants would have gone with this. It would have been a plaid ensemble in the 70s. I have pictures to prove. But we think of that, those days, we go, oh, life was simpler. Life was simpler. Or I think back to the 1980s when I had graduated from plaid pants to parachute pants with the zippers made out of parachute material. I don't know. It made sense in the 80s. But I think back and I go, oh, those days, they were kinder days. They were gentler days. But those memories really are just that. They're, they're nostalgia. They're nostalgia colored by the fact that I was a child and relative privilege. But the world back then was no more peaceful or kind than it is today. I was born at the tail of the Vietnam War. I grew up in the Cold War, and I went to college during the Desert Storm War. Life was no more peaceful, and those were just the global conflicts. I was only experiencing a measure of peace because I was insulated by my youth and my naivety and my culture in suburban Wilmington from the turmoil that swirled around me. The world was not and is not at peace. Pastor and author Tony Evans suggests that this word turmoil may be the best word to describe 
the world, not only today, but the world as it has been since Adam and Eve first took those bites of fruit. Turmoil. It seems to be everywhere we look, there's conflict. In our world, there's war and abuse and crime. In our churches, there's distrust, there's division. Sometimes it's racial, sometimes it's economic, sometimes it's just personalities. We can't seem to get along. We can't seem to figure it out. Sometimes it's in Christian ministries where the turmoil is just the sense of being overwhelmed. There's so much to do. There's so much work that needs to be done that the structures and the finances and the human capacity get stretched and strained and people become tired and frustrated, overwhelmed, overworked. Good people, good people who have hearts of ministry, good people who are trying to share the gospel feel the turmoil. Our relationships are filled with turmoil with our spouses and our parents and our children, even our friends. Even our friends, we find ourselves in turmoil. Back in my day, see, I just did it. Back in my day, we had friends and we had enemies. Maybe we had enemies, but we certainly had friends and we had enemies. Today, nowadays, you have frenemies. What better term for the confusion of relationships than the word frenemy? These relationships with people that we love so much are overshadowed by turmoil. And then there is perhaps the worst turmoil of all, and that's when you can't live with yourself. When your own pain and your own conflicts or your own struggles put you at war with yourself. But whether it's the heart or the home or in ministries or the church or in the broader world, we find ourselves with no shortage of turmoil. We don't have to look far to find turmoil. And so we long for little peace, financial peace, peace of mind, relational peace, and then, of course, peace on earth, peace in our neighborhoods, in our nation, in our city. And the image that often comes to mind when we think of peace or a peaceful city is not unlike this sort of Christmas card image. Gently falling snow, colorful buildings, painted like they're painting them on Market Street by Loma, brightly colored, serene, calm, no turmoil. Or to use a more maybe young person phrase, no drama. When my daughter would get into the car after our day of high school and I'd ask her how things went that day, she would be like, oh, you know, the normal drama. And I think, drama does seem pretty normal, doesn't it? Sometimes when I come home from work, Gina will ask me, how was your day? And I'll say, or or she'll say, "Um, um, what happened today? And I'll say, nothing, but in a good way. You ever have those kind of days where you're like, nothing happened and it made it the best day of the week? And that's interesting that sometimes it happens that our greatest hope becomes that nothing bad happens. We simply long for no drama. But then what we start doing is we start paralleling this idea of no drama with peace. I'm at peace as long as there's no drama. I'm at peace as long as there's no turmoil. And that idea of no drama, that can be part of peace. That's part of what peace is. Just like this picture, that's, that's certainly a picture of peace. That's a, that's a part of peace, but it's a low understanding of peace. It's a basic understanding of peace 
it's sort of a weak understanding of peace, and that understanding of peace leads to weak hopes of peace and weak dreams of peace. The Bible's concept of peace is much, much more than this Christmas card image. It doesn't reject this image necessarily. It expands it. Does anyone know what the Old Testament word for peace is? Shalom. Shalom. In the Bible, the word shalom is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. 200 times. But it's sometimes hard to discern because in the English, it is translated in many different ways. But it is always translated as something more than lack of conflict. It is wholeness, it is welfare, it is goodness, it is prosperity, it is everything being in order. It is everything that makes for our highest good. Significantly, shalom is not just the absence of bad things, but the presence of good ones. Shalom is not just the absence of the bad, but the presence of the good. To use our earlier language, it's not just the absence of drama, but the presence of goodness, the presence of fulfillment, the presence of enjoyment. In the book of Judges, in the book of Judges, Gideon was one of the judges or one of the deliverers of Israel. And he built an altar to God and he named it Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. Jehovah Shalom. Not That doesn't mean the God of nothing bad happening. That's not the God of everything being chill. It's not the God of nothing bad happened, so everything must be good. He is the God of goodness, the God of fulfillment, the God of wholeness, the God of enjoyment. You see, God doesn't just remove turmoil from our lives or from the lives of your neighbors or your coworkers or our city. But he wants to replace that drama with something better. He wants to replace that with something richer. Far more than just lack of conflict. In Isaiah 9, we hear the prophecy about Jesus, the son of Jehovah Shalom, and a prophecy about the Messiah. And along with a bunch of other names, the Messiah receives the name Sar Shalom, which is Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and of shalom, there will be no end. The Prince of Peace who brings shalom will have a kingdom that will never end. When Jesus is born later, the angels declare to the shepherds, glory to, God in, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those with whom God is pleased. So what I've established for you this morning, for those of you who are thinking along with me, is a disconnect. You should be feeling a disconnect. I established that our life is full of turmoil and drama, And yet our God is the God of peace with the Son who is the Prince of Peace. And I think it's fair for us to ask, how do we bridge the chasm between the two? How do we bridge this chasm between the drama that we experience in our lives and the Prince of Peace who promises to bring peace? 
If that is your question, it is a fair one, and it is a good one, and it is one that we hope to answer over the next few weeks. We won't have the full answer today, but we're going to sort of start moving in that direction. And to answer it today, or to start answering it today, I want to look at a very ancient letter. It was a letter written to a group of people who were experiencing what was surely the largest dose of turmoil that they had ever experienced. Way back in 586 BC, the nation of Judah, which had splintered off from the nation of Israel, was taken captive by the Babylonians, a rough crowd, a violent, sprawling empire led by King Nebuchadnezzar. This captivity had been predicted by the prophets for years, particularly one prophet named Jeremiah had said again and again, shape up or you're getting taken into captivity. Be righteous or you're going to get taken into captivity. Knock down the altars or you're going to be taken into captivity. They didn't, and so the Babylonians swoop in, destroy Jerusalem, and take back almost everybody to Babylon, hundreds of miles away, hundreds of miles away from their home. Jeremiah actually was scuttled off to Egypt against his will to save him from being taken away. So the people in Israel are, or are taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah is shuttled off to Egypt, and then Jeremiah comes back to, to Jerusalem. So he's in Jerusalem, and the people are off in exile. And you can imagine the mindset of these people who are in exile. It's not a happy day. There's a poem from the time that talks about the people crying by the rivers of Babylon to go home. So distress, turmoil. And certainly, they longed to go home. And there were false prophets at the time that were telling them, your stay here in Babylon is going to be brief. Don't unpack your bags. Just kind of huddle up and wait it out. You won't be here long. And it is to these people that Jeremiah from Jerusalem, writes a letter. And this letter is in the Bible. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. And we're going to look at just verses 4 through 7 of this letter where Jeremiah tells the exiled people this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build Houses. Hmm. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I'm sure that you can imagine the shock of this to the people huddling together in Babylon, hoping to wait this thing out. Surprised that Jeremiah should tell them to establish themselves there. There. There in Babylon? Amongst the Babylonians? And then Jeremiah takes it up a notch. He says, don't just plan to be there for a while. Seek the welfare 
of that city. That word welfare in Hebrew is shalom. Seek the peace. Seek the wholeness. Seek the prosperity. Seek God's good fortune upon the city where you're in. Jeremiah uses the big word shalom. He does not use the just try to get along word. He doesn't use the just tolerate it and wait it out word. He doesn't leave the, use the just huddle up in your own little circle word. He says, seek the goodness, the holy order, the divine blessing of the community that you're in. Your school, your workplace, your neighborhood. Seek the goodness of where God has placed you. Now, I know, for those of you who are thinking context, I know that we're not Judah hanging out in Babylon in 586. But if you'll remember back, some of you who were part of our First Peter Bible study last year, you'll remember that First Peter, in referring to Christians, refers to us in three ways. Elect, scattered, and exiled. He says, Christians, you are aliens in your world. You are Christians in Babylon. You are believers in God in a fallen world. So I don't think it's any stretch at all to take these words of Jeremiah that say, seek the goodness, the shalom of your community and to apply it to Christians. I think it makes perfect sense that we are to seek the shalom of those around us because we are exiles and strangers and aliens. So how do we find peace in a Babylon of drama? Well, I think Jeremiah gives us a few pieces of advice. First, seek the peace. Seek the peace. It must be looked for. You know, we sometimes have this very laid-back sense of peace. Kind of like, peace will find us. If I just sort of chill, right? If I go hang out in the woods, peace will find me. If I just... If there's conflict out there, and I just sort of come back here, then I'll have peace. Peace will find me. But Jeremiah says, seek the peace. Look for it. Pursue it. Go after it. Seeking peace is an action. Sitting back and doing nothing is often not the way to peace. Later in the New Testament book of Ephesians, Paul, writing another letter, creates this word picture that's become important to Christians. And so this picture of putting on the armor of God. And the idea is, is that um, a Christian, in order to navigate this, the turmoil of Babylon, the turmoil of the world, can pray on, upon themselves through the Spirit different pieces of armor. So you end up with such things as the helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith. Now, if you think of that definition of peace, that's kind of the laid-back definition, I, I'm trying to figure out what piece of armor that would be. They didn't really have a piece of armor for, like, their hindquarters. But that definition of peace feels like that would be the armor, right? If peace meant be laid back, just chill, just have a seat, just relax, then it feels like that would be the piece of armor that Paul would have used, right? the hind plate of peace. I'm keeping it G-rated for you all. 
Is that right? Well, you may or may not know, but there is a piece of armor that is peace. He says it's the feet. The shoes of the armor are the readiness with the gospel of peace. It's active. We seek peace. We bring peace. We carry peace with the message of gospel, of the gospel. We seek the peace. And we seek the peace of the city where we have been sent into exile. Jeremiah has already led up to this in the verse before. He says, build houses, plant gardens, take wives, and have sons and daughters. Here, I think, is the principle. Here's what Jeremiah is getting at. You're going to be here for a while. Establishing peace is going to take a while. You're in it for the long haul. Look how Jeremiah is telling them to seek peace. It's a long-term investment. Build houses, plant gardens, and you see the detail there? Not only are they going to plant the gardens, they're going to be there long enough to eat of the produce of their gardens. Notice, they're not just supposed to give their sons and daughters into marriage, but their sons and daughters are going to have children also. When Jeremiah says, seek the peace of the city where I've sent you in exile, he's saying, you're going to be in here, you're going to be here doing this for generations. Peace-seeking is for the long haul. So let me encourage you, some of you are in the midst of peace-seeking in some area of your life. Some of you might be saying, I've been trying to make peace with my family for 20 years. Or I've been trying to make peace with this coworker at work for months, but it feels like it's been years. And I say to you, keep at it. Keep at it. The work of peace takes time. It takes investment. Keep at it. For others, I want to encourage us not to shy away from challenges of peacemaking because it's going to be long and difficult. Bringing the gospel will sometimes be difficult, and sometimes we won't even be able to see the end point. Did you notice that Jeremiah doesn't quite tell them how long this is going to last? He just says, you're going to want to build a house. Plant a garden. Be prepared to raise your kids. Go check out the school system. Join a soccer league. You're going to be there for a while. And sometimes I think we see some of the big problems where peace needs to be brought. We see things like racism or the sex trade or economic injustice, and we go, oh, that is such a huge problem. And we just want to be like, if I just step over here, maybe peace will show up. Where Jeremiah says, you've got to dive in, and you've got to seek it, and you've got to do it for the long haul. And I don't even know what kind of results you'll see, but you dive in anyway. Because we have the feet of the readiness of the gospel of peace. We are the bearers of good peace. We are the bearers of shalom. Peace may not come quickly, but we do not avoid the larger problems of our families and our lives and our communities just because it's not going to happen quickly. Shalom 
like Rome, is not built in a day. Jeremiah goes on to say, pray to the Lord on its behalf. We pray for peace. And this is significant because it reminds us that peace does not originate within us. We cannot find peace. You cannot find peace simply by looking inside yourself. We must look to the Lord for peace. And we must bring the Lord to Babylon, to the world, in order for the world to experience peace. Do we really think that wholeness and goodness and all things shalom are going to come from within us? Jeremiah definitively says no. He says you pray for shalom. You pray for it. And we must do that. We pray to Jehovah Shalom. We pray to Sar Shalom, the God of peace and the Prince of peace, that we might have peace. And I love the intercessory nature of this language here. We pray on behalf of the city, of our neighbors, of our family. You pray on behalf of people who what? Can't pray for themselves. We are the ones that pray on the behalf of the city, of the nation, of our schools and of our workplaces. Finally, our peace and the peace of the city are intimately connected Jeremiah says, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I'll give you one guess on what the word translated as welfare is in Hebrew. Shalom. For in its shalom, your community's shalom, you will find your shalom. Isolation from the problems of our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our families, isolation will not achieve shalom-level peace. It may create a bubble in which you can live, but this is the very thing that Jeremiah seems to be speaking against. He's saying, don't, don't bubble yourself in. There's a wideness to God's peace and then there's a wildness to it. Because it may not look like you expect. It may require more of us. It may be less safe feeling than you imagine. Shalom level peace may not always be as tame as you think. And there seems to be little room in Jeremiah, Jeremiah's mind for this bubble wrap mentality. But cushion myself enough from the issues around me, then we think we have peace. But sometimes it just makes us unable to move. I think of uh, that kid from the Christmas story, that kid, right? You're so bundled up that you can't even enjoy life. Or for those of you who are Seinfeld fans, if you remember George Costanza's Gore-Tex jacket, right? (laughs) But this is sometimes our view of peace, If I can just put on enough thickness of Gore-Tex jackets or scarves and mittens, then I'll be at peace because I've insulated myself from all the issues. I've insulated myself in my office. I've insulated myself in my home. I've insulated myself from these issues. And therefore, I must be at peace. And Jeremiah says, no. If there is not peace in your community, there is not peace for you. 
Now, I want to do a quick parenthesis here. I just talked about how some of you have been in a long journey of making peace. And I'm not saying that there's not times where you need to step out of that battle and bubble yourself up for a few minutes and recharge and let the Lord encourage you to send you back into the fight. What I'm discouraging is the overall um, philosophy that the church sometimes has and that people in the church sometimes have that peace equals insulation and isolation. There might be a time for that, but that can't be our strategy because Jeremiah says our peace and the peace of the community are connected. Shalom-type peace is connected. So we seek peace. We dive in for the long haul. We pray for peace. And we don't isolate ourselves from those without peace. Rather, we carry peace to our communities. I began the sermon today by talking about how I look back with nostalgia and act like I like to think that things were simpler and more peaceful in the past, but they were not. Certainly, times are different, but we've had no eras of peace. Which just reminds me that peace is not something we can look backwards for. We must look forward to peace. We must look forward to the hope of peace that comes through Christ, the Prince of Peace. Final shalom Final relief from turmoil, final relief from the drama of life is the hope of the future that motivates us to act now. We look toward peace. But work must be done. And so we do the work. Today, tomorrow, months, for years, we do the work of bringing peace, the peace of God. And we look for it to show up. We look for glimpses of peace to show up. In our families, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, we see moments of peace that remind us of the grander peace that is in our future. It is our future. It is our hope. It is a hope that even Jeremiah presents in this very letter. A few lines later from what we just read, Jeremiah says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. The first half of that verse, literally translated, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of shalom. Lord, we want to be a community that seeks peace. We want to be a community that goes after peace, that have feet ready. But we know, Lord, that takes courage. We know, Lord, that that takes your spirit in us. And so we ask, we pray that we would be people of peace, that we would be people who understand the complexities and are still willing to dive in that we are people that understand that simple separation from the troubles of this world around us does not bring shalom to ourselves nor to our communities. We all lose. And so I pray that you would give us hearts like yours. 
hearts that desire peace and wholeness and goodness for all people. And that we, in each of our contexts, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, whatever is our context, that we would be the bearers of peace to those people we come into contact with every day. And we pray this in the name of Jehovah Shalom and Sar Shalom. 